Welcome to our Mid Press News Midcast live stream. I'm your host, Manar Adley. Um, today, we have a very special guest. We'll be talking with our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Dan Cohen. Um, and he's going to be talking about his latest investigation. Um, so I'm going to just get right start, get to it and get started. Um, but before I do, um, we ask everybody who's joining us, like we always do with our live streams, to share this wherever you can to help us beat social media algorithms. Um, Colombia is regularly described as the Latin or the Israel of Latin America. And although on the other side of the world from each other, the two countries share many similarities um, because they are both key outposts of U.S. powers in the regions, helping make their neighborhoods safe for American business and and American profits. Uh, A new investigation from our guest today has highlighted how Israeli actors were key players in political massacres carried out by the Colombian government. Dan Cohen is a journalist. I'm going to add you here, Dan. He's a journalist and filmmaker based in Washington, D.C. with Behind the Headlines. It's a new viewer-supported investigative journalism project uh, under the umbrella of Mint Press News. His film, Killing Gaza, explores the 2014 Israeli assault on the highly populated strip. His latest article, which we will be discussing today, Uh, It's called um, New Investigation Reveals Role of Israeli Operatives in Colombia's Political Genocide, which you can read on our website at mintpressnews.com. This is probably one of the most important stories we've published um, on our website in the past. And um, so I I hope that as... We are losing connection here. So just want to make sure... And now I don't know if it's from my side or your side. I can't really tell either, but your screen is like completely frozen. Mm. Oh, there you are. You're back. A strong start. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. This happened the other day as well, so it's all good. Um, Dan, if you can just start by filling us in with the latest on the ground in Colombia, because I think that a lot of people that are watching the strikes that are taking place there, um, you know, they don't think of Israel. It doesn't come to mind right away, but you actually recently tweeted out this incredible video of um, protesters in Colombia who are on strike, who are burning the American flag and the Israeli flag um, in a show of dissent against, you know, not just the economic situation there, but against Western and Israeli imperialism. Can you start us from that aspect of the story? Definitely. Um, In fact, I think we can possibly share we can even show that that video right is everyone seeing that all right i'll turn it down but i think everyone should be able to see that right so yeah i mean this you know in colombia um about a week ago they burned the israeli and american flag which i mean the, the here i'll show it again the tweet i put out went viral um and you know really showed that it's not what's happening in Colombia isn't just a strike and an up you know isn't just a strike against austerity measures which it definitely is but it's also there's an element of anti-imperialism that you know people understand um, that they're against Western Empire that Colombia is an outpost of um, U.S. imperialism and that Israel has actually played a very uh, over stated role a very large role in um a lot of suffering that's gone on in colombia and not just recently but over since the 1980s really is where my investigation picks up um and so basically there um there was a recent investigation from a renowned colombian journalist named alberto donadio who showed that um Israel was involved in what was deemed a, a political genocide um, from the beginning in the middle, like the, the mid 80s, and that lasted for about 20 years and killed several thousand um, left wing people, um, activists, uh, ex combatants, all kinds of people. Um, and so my, my article 
talks about that. And then there was also the role of uh, another Israeli mercenary in training the paramilitary death squads that have terrorized and continue to terrorize uh, Colombians and particularly the working class peasants um, throughout the countryside. Um, And I mean, these death squads have just had, I mean, they're basically, you know, you could compare them to like ISIS, that level of, of brutality. Um, and, you know, they were trained by Israel. Um, so, you know, we'll get into that. But um, you know, to talk a little bit about the current the current uprising, I mean, basically, you know, so everyone understands what's happening right now. There is a strike going on. It's been just over a month um, in rejection of neoliberal austerity measures imposed by Ivan Duque, the, the right wing, the far right president and ally of the United States. And these austerity measures basically would increase taxes and, and fares and all kinds of costs on working class and middle class people. And Colombia is in a situation of um, very serious poverty, about 43%, according to official statistics, 43% of Colombians are already in poverty, 15% of them are in extreme poverty. So, you know, wow. where people are not able to eat um, day to day, you know, they go days without without having a meal. Um, and it's only gotten much worse in the pandemic where the government has has really um, gone, uh, you know, has gone hands off and just kind of it's destroyed the economy and, 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 and you know, people have greatly suffered. Um, now, at the same time that the Colombian government is telling people that they have to accept this tax increase. Um, one thing I found that actually I, I found it after I published the article is that the Colombian army, right before it was, you know, telling people we don't have any choice, we have to balance the budget, you know, deal with this deficit. At the same time, they were actually buying um, about more than $14 million worth of assault rifles from Israel. Um, so the the uh, Galil ACE-23 rifle is the standard um, weapon of the Colombian military, and those are provided by Israel. And so, you know, well, so there's no there's, there's no money, you know, for, for basic necessities, for people to be able to eat, um, for people, you know, to have cooking gas in their homes, these kinds of things. But the military can definitely afford a bunch of new rifles in order to repress the protests. Um, and there have been in these these protests in this national strike, there have been numerous people killed, unarmed demonstrators, indigenous people um, have been killed by police, by soldiers and also by paramilitaries. Uh, you know, so so there's there's a lot that there's a lot going on. And, and you know, talk about like what Israel's role is in, um, you know, in the in the current violence. I mean, one thing. You know, last September, I talk about this in the article, last September, as um, there were numerous massacres taking place throughout the country, the Colombian and Israeli militaries did like counterterrorism training. Um, and so, you know, these these massacres are often carried out with the acquiescence or support of the Colombian government and military. And so Israel is there at the very same time. Um, and so to me, that kind of harkens back to like what, you know, Israel's role has been for decades um, in Colombia. So basically, my investigation starts off in the mid 80s, in like 1984, there was a peace accord between the government and the FARC, which was a revolutionary Marxist Leninist rebel group that sought to overthrow the government and have a more equitable society, because basically, for decades and decades, the vast majority of the land throughout the country has been concentrated in the hands of a tiny uh, number of people and to an ultra elite. Um, and so, you know, people have been living in extreme poverty. And so that's basically why the FARC exists um, in a few in a few sentences. So as a result of this peace accord, the FARC agrees to take their struggle to the political arena. And so you have... Um, a political party called the Patriotic Union formed, which was basically kind of a broad left-wing coalition of FARC combatants, um, of communists, 
of, you know, just all kinds of left-wing people throughout the country. Um, and it was, you know, pretty successful in terms of building a, a viable political party um, that, would, you know, compete in local and regional and national elections. And so um, after this peace deal is signed and the party is created um, between, it was actually the conservative president, uh, Bancourt, who, who signed the agreement with the FARC and, and created this, uh, this political party. Soon you have another president um, coming in um, named uh, Virgilio Barco. And Barco was considered more liberal, but he basically sought um, a way to defeat the FARC, defeat the left wing party, defeat the, the, um, the patriotic union on behalf of business interests, essentially, who, you know, don't want any kind of redistribution of land, who want, you know, to keep all of their wealth. Um, and so Betancourt, I'm sorry, um, Barco, Virgilio Barco, the new president of Colombia, basically decides I need to stop the left from coming into power. And, you know, I'm afraid if, if they're actually allowed to do it in a electoral way, then maybe they'll win. And so he looks to an old friend of his who he met. He was living right here in Washington, D.C. when he was uh, uh, he was an ambassador. And it's actually an Israeli spy, a uh, top Israeli Mossad spy named Rafi Eitan. Rafi Eitan um, was in numerous high level Mossad operations. Um, he recruited a very famous Nazi, um, which is not in the article I found later, but he actually, he recruited a very famous Nazi, um, and more, most relevant, he was the guy, he was the man who oversaw the, um, the Jonathan Pollard spying operation when basically a, a Jewish American naval intelligence officer was recruited by Israel to spy. Uh, on the United States and gave a bunch of documents, classified military documents to Israel. And then this, you know, turned into a kind of diplomatic fiasco when it was exposed. And Pollard went to jail for a few decades um, and was actually only released just last year to pardon him uh, right. his final weeks in office. Right. And um, and then actually Sheldon Adelson, when he was still alive, uh, flew Adelson, flew Pollard back to Israel on his, on his private jet. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so um, Rafi Etan, this Mossad spy, was the key guy, and so uh, who you know overseeing this, um, and so he was basically he was indicted as a conspirator as part of this conspiracy, but they didn't press charges against him for un, you know unknown reasons, probably because they wanted to go soft on on Israel, as is always the case in the U.S. And so Rafi Etan after, you know, decades spying uh, around the world and all kinds of uh, crazy operations for the Mossad, he goes back to Israel and kind of at the center of national, you know, international scandal. Um, and he was given a cushy landing by the president at the time, uh, not, the, um, not by the president, but uh, by Ariel Sharon, who would, of course, go on to be prime minister, but I think was chief of staff um, for the Minister of Defense. He was, he was basically a high-ranking official at the time. And so he got, uh, Ariel Sharon got Rafi Eitan a cushy gig at like um, at one of the top kind of state-owned businesses, state-owned companies in Israel. And so that left him all this free time. And so Rafi Eitan decides, you know, he, he basically gets called to go to Colombia um, by his old buddy, who's now the president. And he says, you know, so how can I defeat the left? And he advises him. Um, he basically they tour around the country and he advises them. You just have to, these aren't his exact words. We don't know his exact words, but you have to kill them all. You just have to kill them. And he, and he said, you know, I, if you want, I can do it. Uh, just pay me in, you know, more. And when, um, when the president pre presented this idea to the military, the military said, no, 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 no. We don't want you to do it. We're going to do it. You know, if anyone's going to kill our leftists, it's going to be us. Wow. And so that uh, basically right around then, there was a huge increase in the number of killings of patriotic union activists uh, and members 
And so um, by paramilitary and military. Um, and so for decades, I mean, you know, in, in really shocking ways in public, there were at least two presidential candidates assassinated who were, you know, pretty um, very, you know, powerful um, had serious followings. There were numerous mayors. There were mayoral candidates assassinated. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, low-ranking people who were supporters. I mean, there were a lot of politicians being assassinated. Um, so this was basically a secret for a long time, for decades and decades. Um, and this, you know, and actually the the ex- the extermination of the of the Patriotic Union went on until technically until 2002, or I'm sorry, yeah, until 2000, um, 2002. By 2000, no, by 2002, all it went on in two, until 2002. And by 2002, the Patriotic Union had been so thoroughly exterminated that the, um, the government, the electoral authorities basically said it's no longer a political party because it doesn't meet the threshold. It doesn't have enough members. Um, so it's just been wiped out of existence. Um, and so a Colombian court ended up deeming it a what it called a political genocide. And so that's why I use the term the term genocide for yeah. the extermination of the, of the patriotic union. That's what I was going to ask you is, you know, can you explain what the political genocide is? Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's what I said, just, you know, the total right. extermination of so many, so many politicians. I mean, I can expand on that even a little bit. There was, um, you know, uh, the name eludes me at the moment, but one of the high ranking members was even chased uh, in her vehicle in the middle of the in the middle of the day. And and um, paramilitaries fired a bazooka at her and they missed the missile failed to, to hit the target. Um, and she was calling into the radio and desperately uh, pleading for help live on air while she's being chased. And she ended up she survived that attack and ended up fleeing the country. So, you know, these are and, and many of these people are still out, of, uh, not, you know, around the world, scattered around the world. It's not safe for them to come back. So there is, you know, this is not just like some history from a couple of decades ago. That's kind of interesting. It's very real and very relevant. To, right. to what's going on right now. And, um, you know, Dan, a lot of people don't even know that there's ongoing conflict taking place in Colombia. Like, they just have no idea, especially in the United States, where we're just bombarded with so much news coming out of Venezuela. We're constantly being told that, um, you know, Venezuela is the country where the crisis is, you know, because of the ec- economic situation there, without obviously the con- the proper context that it's the United States waging an economic war against Venezuela. But in Colombia, um, the scale of violence is enormous, as you just described. I mean, you described political genocide. Um, the United Nations estimates that over 7 million Colombians have been internally displaced by the government's attacks on the countryside. Um, why don't we hear more about the extraordinary violence in Colombia on our nightly news broadcasts versus Venezuela? Right. It's pretty remarkable when you look at the the coverage, um, uh, you know, on a daily basis. There's some kind of, you know, New York Times, Washington Post article about how Maduro is a dictator and Venezuela, you know, is in crisis because of petropopulism or some like phony think tank term. Um, but all of, you know, what they say about Venezuela is basically a projection of Colombia. I mean, Colombia right. is an absolute human rights nightmare um you know as you said there's seven million people internally displaced that's the largest internally displaced population in the world more than you know for example syria which has suffered a you know horrible dirty war or afghanistan you know which is um i mean it's so it's almost unfathomable unfathomable to think of how huge the scale of violence is um and this has just been basically a permanent war since um the 1950s is really kind of when it, you know, entered its current phase. Um, and, you know, that's just never really stopped. So much of that was engineered is, uh, by the U.S. and is a result of U.S. imperialism. And, you know, the reason that we never hear about this um, in Western media or when we do, it's, it's portrayed in kind of, you know, really soft terms. Um, it's downplayed. 
as opposed to Venezuela, where it's, you know, it's, it's hyped up how, you know, the, the, they want to portray the government as uniquely evil. Um, the reason we never hear about this in uh, the reason we never hear about Colombia in such terms in Western media is because, well, for one thing, Colombia is has a ton of wealth itself that's constantly being extracted by Western corporations. Um, there are all kinds of oil mining uh, corporations. Um, there are uh, uh, just pizza operates out of Colombia. Right? Yeah, yeah, bananas are huge, exactly. Yeah. Which have we you know which have funded paramilitaries. Um, so it's basically you know a giant uh, farm for all kinds of all kinds of wealth. Um, but in addition to that, Colombia is the most important asset of the United States in projecting imperial power over the region, over Latin America. Um, so you know, if, especially over Venezuela. So since the the 2019 coup attempt in Venezuela that the U.S. orchestrated by naming Juan Guaido as interim president, um, the United States has launched and Colombian opposition, I'm sorry, Venezuelan opposition, have launched numerous kind of attacks and destabilization plots out of Colombia. Um, There was last year the infamous Bay of Piglets attack where um, American mercenaries um, attempted to invade Venezuela and kidnap President Maduro. That was, according to one of the plotters, that was planned and operated out of Colombia. Um, so, you know, the U.S. Con- continues to deploy um, uh, its military along the Colombian um, border with Venezuela, you know, the, the U.S. claims it's about drug trafficking, but it's actually to project power against Venezuela. Um, when, you know, Bolton, when Trump was uh, threatening to invade Venezuela, there was that infamous photo of John Bolton um, with his with his yellow pad and it said something like 100,000 troops to Colombia. That was a threat, you know, against Venezuela. So, um, and not only against Venezuela, also against Ecuador. In the recent election um, in Ecuador, when um, the socialist candidate uh, Andres Arauz, who eventually lost, um, you know, was in the running against the eventual winner, uh, Guillermo Lasso, the Colombian attorney general went to uh, Ecuador. And this is an extremely corrupt figure, who, you know, who's heavily involved with narco trafficking, drug trafficking. He went to Ecuador and, and claimed, you know, of course, without providing any evidence, that the socialist candidate, Andres Arauz, was um, was uh, tied to uh, left-wing rebel groups in the, in Colombia, the, the ELM, the National Liberation Army, um, and the um, FARC dissidents, like uh, uh, FARC groups that didn't abide by the, the peace accord in 2016. And there was no evidence to any of this, and it's obviously false. Um, but you know, it shows that it's like when you know the U.S. doesn't want someone to come to power in Ecuador. In that you know case, they basically deploy one of their assets in Colombia um, to go try to destabilize. So you know, it, it's geographically and politically, you can't really overstate how important um, Colombia is to. Uh, U.S. imperialism in Latin America. And so that's why, you know, they can just get away with anything. Absolutely. And do you see, like, um, Brazil moving in that direction in terms of, like, the United, like, the relationship that the U.S. has with Brazil now under Bolsonaro? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, Bolsonaro is clearly a U.S. asset. And, you know, I mean, I think even a CIA asset. He came to, when he came to the U.S., he went and visited CIA headquarters. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so obvious, um, you know, what exactly is going on. And of course there's the huge U S role in, um, operation car wash, um, you know, to put, to put Lula in jail, um, in, in Brazil. And so, you know, now that Lula is, um, out of jail has been cleared and is running again for president of Brazil. Um, you know, and this is the most popular president in Brazil, Brazil's history, 
Um, and, you know, his time was, you know, one of the most popular people in Latin America. Um, that's the U.S. sees that as a threat. So it'll be really interesting to see how um, Colombia is kind of weaponized against Brazil as that comes up, um, you know, as that election approaches. Um, you know, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you just you just can't overstate how important um Colombia is for for U.S. to to control the region. Um, talk to me about Carlos Castaño. Um, he's the leader of the AUC that you mentioned in your report, who the United Nations um, estimates was responsible for around 80 percent of the murders during the worst of the violence. I mean, 80 percent. That's insane. He actually went to Israel, you noted, and credits the apartheid state for teaching him so much of what he knows. Right. Um so yeah, Carlos Castaño was um, or is is was the head of called the AUC, which is the biggest paramilitary in Colombia, and um, you know like he in the early eighties he um, went to Israel, studied at Hebrew University, and did a series of military trainings um, where he basically um, learned advanced paramilitary tactics from the Israeli army. And he, not only did he learn so much about military tactics and, you know, how to be a soldier and, you know, paramilitary leader, but it also revolutionized his thought where he basically understood at that point that the FARC could be defeated. Um, you know, that basically the whole, he says the whole, in his, in his autobiography, that the whole concept of, of what he calls self-defense or paramilitarism, that regular people, you know, who are not enlisted soldiers taking up weapons and going and, um, you know, basically terrorizing poor people, it's something that he learned in Israel. And so, you know, when you look at kind of the, the settler mentality in Israel, um, that's very much part of it. You know, that's that's kind of what what Castaño took um, and and you know changed his changed his way of thinking and went into the creation of these um, paramilitary squads. And so when Castaño got back to Israel, or I'm sorry, to Colombia, um, not long after this, I mean this and this is a huge story in Colombia for years that that Colum- you know pre- most I don't know most Colombians, but a lot of Colombians you know, are very familiar with the name Yair Klein. Um, Yair Klein was an Israeli... Yeah. Right. Go ahead. So Yair Klein is an Israeli uh, um, uh, special, forces, special Forces officer who retired from the military in, like, the early 80s. And he uh, started a company, uh, like a, a mercenary company, um, that first... Got its it kind of got its first big break um, selling weapons to the Christian Falangist militias in Lebanon that were allied with Israel and carried out the infamous um, Sabra and Shatila massacres um, against Palestinian refugees, um, where they basically the the Israeli military secured the the premise and just allowed these and oversaw um, with Ariel Sharon future prime minister at the head um, allowed these militias to go in and just rape and murder and killed, you know, I, I don't know what the official numbers are, but thousands of people. Um, and these are, you know, just gruesome massacres that took place in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. And so this right. guy, um, this guy, Yair Klein sold weapons to these, to these militias. And then he, um, he claims he actually, uh, he, well, so I interviewed him, actually, for this article, and he told me that he went on behalf of the Israeli military. It, he wasn't going as, like, a private citizen, even though he was even though he was technically going as a private, you know, he was working in a private capacity, but he was basically dispatched um, by the Israeli government. Um, so it was kind of an unofficial, in an unofficial way. And so he went, um, and what he claims was, uh, he was told that he would be training, um, you know, uh, people like, like uh, ranchers to defend themselves from cattle rustlers from like people stealing their cows. But he ran these training camps, um, three training 
camps that I think were 10 days long each. And he trained what would basically become the core of the paramilitaries. And among his, uh, among the people he trained were the Castaño brothers. So Carlos Castaño, who had already been in Israel um, training, and his brothers, um, and a number of other people. So he, you know, basically trained them in various terrorism tactics, uh, you know, car bombs, these kinds of things. And, um, and then these paramilitaries went on to terrorize the country for years. In fact, the, um, one of the guys he trained uh, assassinated the leading presidential, presidential candidate um, in 1989, I believe, um, with a gun that uh, Yair Khan provided. And so, you know, I mean, it's just an enormous, enormous impact. Um, and so basically... He left the country, goes back to Israel, and Colombia, you know, wanted to, eventually when this came out, you know, it was such a scandal that Colombia had to do something. The Colombian government had to kind of, you know, look like it's doing something. Tried to extradite him. The Israelis refused um, and have basically protected him. And so he's just in Israel all the time. Um, But, I mean, these paramilitaries that he trained went on to basically just terrorize the country. And as you said, the UN uh, found that they're responsible for 80% of the violence in Colombia, which is, you know, pretty, just a shocking number. Um, and, you know, they've basically, they act as an extension of the paramilitary, or I'm sorry, the paramilitaries act in a, as an extension of the military and of the state. They basically do the dirty work that, you know, the military you know, maybe doesn't want to be caught doing. So they just send in these totally unaccountable paramilitaries um, and they just terrorize the population. I mean, you can read all kinds of horrific stories of um, paramilitaries killing peasants with chainsaws, um, beheading entire families and putting the heads on dinner plates, um, this kind of thing. So, you know, just, you know, I think a lot of this, go ahead, go ahead. No, well, and you talk about like a lot of these paramilitaries are being hired by U.S. corporations like Chiquita, <laughs> like yes. a banana company. I mean, every day I go to the grocery store, I see Chiquita bananas sitting in the grocery store aisle, like by the vegetables, by the fruits and the vegetables. And I remember that because we've reported about we've been reporting about this, you know, for many years at Mint Press. But can you talk a little bit about the cor- the U.S. corporations? You touched on it a little bit, but can you expand on that? Like, let's name the names. Who are these corporations that are working with these paramilitaries? And what have they done? Well, as you said, Chiquita is the one that's been proven. And yeah. they made direct payments to the AUC. Um, and then they also um, transferred weapons to them in anic rates. Um, you know, so it's the one that's been proven. There are a number of other cases okay. that are a little bit, you know, not been like proven in court and kind of thing. Um, there's a famous one where um, with Coca-Cola, where they were accused of um, paying paramilitaries to kill union leaders, um, which was obviously true. There's a, there's a good documentary on it, uh, the name of which escapes Kavalik. You know, I know you recently interviewed him is, is a great friend and a you know great lawyer and activist. He was one of the lawyers that spearheaded that campaign um, to prosecute Coca-Cola on, you know, on, uh, kind of in conjunction with some of the Coca-Cola trade unions, um, which, you know, eventually stalled out for a number of reasons. But, you know, just the fact that these tiny trade unionists were able to take on one of the most powerful corporations in the world and actually refused to be bought out is what happened at the end of the documentary. Even though they didn't end up getting justice, they refused to just, you know, uh, take, you know, the blood money that they were offered. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, I think the important thing to understand about how the paramilitaries operate, it's often really yeah. hard to prove the direct you know, link between the corporation and the paramilitary. But it's like you have corporations operating where these paramilitaries are active. Um, And so, you know, basically the paramilitary goes in and 
you know, wipes out a village or kills a bunch of people and the others flee. And then all oh, the, then the corporation is, you know, drilling oil or, or uh, mining for gold or whatever, you know, other kind of minerals or ores. Um, and so even if it's even if it's not a provable direct link, you have, you know, it's pretty obvious what the what the relationship is. And so, you know, at the bare minimum, these corporations should not be operating in a place in places with, you know, human uh, just such gruesome human rights abuse taking place all over but they do anyway and just kind of turn a blind eye and pretend and oh we're, you know we don't have anything to do with this when in all likelihood they're just paying them under the table just like in case of chiquita and the banana companies and and do they um, do they bring these cases back to the u.s i'm assuming the the, the human which case the yeah. human rights cases the maskers yeah, no yeah. i mean these yeah, they don't. They don't really get talked about. I mean, it's uh, you know, no, they don't get. None of this makes it back to the U.S. in terms of like, in terms of like public knowledge or any of these cases being yeah. legally prosecuted. No, I mean, you look at all over Colombia. You know, I mean, I'm, where I was there in December. Um, you know, and I'm working on this documentary about it. I mean, you can. In I was in a, an area called Argelia Cauca, documenting some of the massacres um, that had just taken place. Um, and there are numerous contracts. You can look in, in Colombia's mining ministry on their website. You can see all of these international corporations have um, contracts in these areas all over the place where massacres are taking place. And so it's like, it's just totally obvious what's going on. But, um, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, in, in some of the bigger mines, um, you know, there there are groups that document some of the threats and massacres against people. And it's like, so people are being threatened and massacred where this mine is, you know, this internationally owned mine by international corporations. Um, but, you know, we're supposed to believe that it's not connected. It's just totally obvious that it is. Right. And um, I'm curious to know more about the FARC what are they doing and the kind of pushback that they're receiving, um, I guess, in their fight for justice? <laughs> That's the right way to say it. I mean, the FARC doesn't really exist anymore. You know, the FARC basically went out of existence in a 2016 peace accord. It was formed in the uh, early 60s. Um as basically what happened is there was the liberal party and the conservative party and they were at war and then they decided okay we're gonna have you know we're gonna go into we're gonna have politics we're gonna have like political parties but we're we're gonna push out the communists we're not gonna let them participate communists you know represented rural peasants um and so what the, what the communists did is essentially have their own communes um they had what they called uh, among several, they had the, the Marcatalia Republic, which was basically a rural area in Colombia um, where, you know, they declared themselves sovereign because they were not allowed to participate in politics. And then what happened is the United States um, and uh, Colombia, um, the United States had designed Colombia's military and they launched um, an attack with you know, full military force against um, the peasants in the Marcatalia Republic. And the killed a lot of people, but didn't manage to kill all of the fighters. And so the fighters fled into the jungle and, and in hiding, and they formed what became the FARC, the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And so the FARC basically battled and grew for, for decades. Um, and by the, the 90s, it was becoming you know especially by the late 90s it became pretty powerful um where it even you know was threatening to overthrow the government and could have an actual revolution and then the u.s basically intervened and said um we're gonna help the colombian military take out the FARC because you know the FARC's right. political program of re redistribution of wealth is totally untenable for u.s corporate interests um, and so basically starting in 2000, President Clinton, uh, 
signed what's called Plan Colombia, which was a multi-billion dollar aid package, military aid package that allowed the Colombian military, um, which was you know in bed with drug cartels and, and death squads and all this stuff, to basically um, attack the FARC. And it was all under the guise of, well, we're, we're combating drug cartels, but they were in bed with drug cartels. It's like giving the money to the drug cartels, um, you know, and the military, you know, which they're allied with, they're tied to and saying, OK, I'll take out those drug cartels. And so um, the FARC, basically, they just waged a brutal war against the FARC and their supporters um, over the years. And so beginning really in like 2008. Um, the CIA provided the Colombian military with technology to target FARC leadership. They would just basically bomb entire camps um, where the FARC was in the jungle. And they took out um, the the top leadership, several people. Um, you know, the, the founder of FARC, Manuel Marulanda, died of a heart attack. Soon after, they killed, you know, the next up and the next up and the next up. And they killed basically six or seven um, uh, the FARC leaders. And then also waged a really aggressive campaign that took out a fair amount of their um, uh, uh, of just their, their fighters. Um, and so the FARC were pretty severely weakened. And that's when basically the um, government under ex-president Juan Manuel Santos um, created, started a secret peace negotiation and said, OK, you know, now you can you know, now that we've weakened you sufficiently and you're no longer a serious threat, now you can transition into becoming a political party and, you know, we'll do this and we'll do that. And um, the FARC agreed. And it was, and it was long, it was a long-term, you know, it took four years for the negotiation to take place and be signed. Um, and it was, you know, on, on all kinds of constant attack from the wing. But basically the peace negotiation, the peace deal was signed. The FARC agreed to give up their arms, um, integrate into society and become a political party. And they did all of that. And the government did not uh, live up to its end of the bargain. And so basically, since the peace agreement in 2016, um, you've had hundreds, about 250 ex-FARC combatants assassinated. You've had... um, about 1,150 social leaders assassinated. Um, and so, you know, when I was down there and I was talking to, you know, different social leaders and ex-combatants and politicians, they compared this very much to the extermination of the of the Patriotic Union in the 1980s. Um, the ongoing, you know, this current extermination of social leaders and ex-FARC combatants who made a deal to lay down their weapons and live in peace and the government basically came in and just didn't live up to its bargain. Now there's a, of course, shortly after they signed, then a new president came in a a more right wing president, but um, you know, the, the, and and who was openly against the peace accord. And so he began, um, you know, really this, this whole extermination of ex-combatants and, um, social leaders accelerated under him, but it had already started under the pri- the previous president who negotiated the accord, the accord, and really did not take serious steps to enact his uh, to enact you know the government's um, what the government was had pledged to do had agreed to do. So now there's another election coming up next year. Um, the peace accords are you know hanging by threads and. Then you have this historic uprising against, um, you know, this national strike and uprising against kind of neoliberal politics and and right. you know to agree to Western imperialism and the FARC is no is you know is not really present. Um, so it's it's a big question of you know where Colombia goes in the next year. Well, and that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next, which is um, you know despite all of the violence, despite all of I mean, this is really like tragic, really, really tragic stuff that you just described. Despite that, there seems to be, from what I've been reading, a little tiny bit of glimmer of hope. Maybe uh, polls are showing that current president um, Ivan Duque has the lowest approval rating of any Colombian leader in its history. Um, the polls also show that former leftist guerrilla 
Gustavo is by far the number one candidate for next year's presidential election. However, obviously, Colombian history shows that the left or any liberal presidential frontrunners are frequently assassinated. They're murdered. So what do you think the future holds for Colombia? I mean, even, you know, considering what I just said, and plus considering Israel's getting a new prime minister. Is there, what do you think? What's the future? We just have about seven minutes left. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the current president, Ivan Duque, is definitely uh, not very popular at the, at, yeah. at the moment. Um, and, you know, he's doing everything he can to, to stay in power. And he's I think, you know, his strategy to um, to to be reelected is to basically let the country burn and then portray himself as some kind of savior is something that's you know, going to bring stability back. Um Sounds like Trump. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's very, it's, it's exactly right. It's very much like Trump's strategy last summer when you know there were um, protests all over the country and he was you know portraying them as all this crazy chaos and he's going to be the law and order guy that comes in. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, Duque's strategy has just been to crack down on them um, and not give and not give kind of an inch to to the demands of the protests. I mean, the he called off the. the, the reforms, but he hasn't, you know, the tax reforms, the basically austerity measures, but he's also said that it's a necessary thing. They're just going to have to be redrafted. Um, but he hasn't dared to make a new proposal because that would only fuel the strike and, you know, get more people out in the streets. But I mean, it's pretty remarkable to see that this has gone on for more than a month, considering the extreme brute violence that um, the police, the military and paramilitaries have been meeting out against unarmed protesters. Um, so, you know, all of this in the context of next year's election, where you have, you know, basically a center left-wing candidate, Gustavo Petro, as you, yeah. you, know, who you mentioned, um, who, you know, friends in Colombia have kind of described him to me as like Colombia's Bernie Sanders. Um, so he's, you know, not revolutionary by any stretch. Um, and, you know, I'm, I mean, I think there are questions about what his political program really is. How much you know, is he going to be able to challenge what is an extremely powerful narco state, even if he is elected? Um, and how much would he fundamentally be able to alter or reshape Colombia's established role? You know, for decades, it's been established as a... Um, Narco, not only as a narco state, but as a platform for American imperialism. You know, is he able to actually fundamentally change the biggest issues that were, you know, were supposed to be part of the, the peace agreement where there was uh, land distribution, you know, where peasants um, who grow coca, um, who have no choice but to grow coca for cocaine export um, for drug cartels, you know, they can grow something else, some other kind of crop. Uh, crop substitution was, was another big part of the peace accord that was, you know, never really happened. Um, they're supposed to develop the country. So, you know, you could, they could take their their crops, their alternative crops, you know, mangoes, coconuts, avocados, whatever other kind of produce, and and get them to international markets. But that was never done. So the only thing people can do is grow coca for cocaine consumption in the United States and Europe. So all of these things that have to be addressed um, that, you know, they weren't, they were, they were part of the peace accord and which is why, you know, why a lot of people supported it, but the peace accord came under attack, not only from Colombian right wing, but from the United States with support from bi- bipartisan support. I mean, one, you know, one of the important things I, I think to note, Trump, um, was closely allied with Duque with, with the current right wing government, um, and when I was in Colombia last December, which was right after Biden had won, a lot of people, you know, on kind of the left were hopeful that Biden would have some kind of departure from Trump's politics, from, you know, right. Trump's policies vis-a-vis Colombia. And it hasn't happened. One of the things that Trump did was insist that the Colombian military start spraying glyphosate, which is the, the chemical and Roundup. Um, and they and for years and years, they were spraying it all over, you know, supposedly over coca uh, plants in order to, to kill them. But it had no real impact on stopping cocaine production. But what it did is it really it poisoned a lot of 
farmer communities in rural areas and created right. conflict. And so people were really angry that Trump was in. This was stopped in the peace accord in 2016. They stopped doing this. And Trump started saying, oh, you have to resume doing it. You have to resume spraying this chemical. And what has been done? Biden's State Department has also said you have to start, you know, spraying this chemical again. So it's like where, like so many other issues on, you know, foreign policy that people have hoped that Biden is going to like, you know, be better than Trump. He's actually just continued this. So it's, I, it's hard, you know, I just have no idea. I can't speculate or even imagine where Colombia is going to go. But um, the U.S. is fundamentally opposed to yeah. peace in Colombia. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, you know, you and I, Dan, we know this, and I'm sure most of our viewers and readers know this, too, that, you know, Biden comes from the neoliberal Obama administration, <laughs> and so, which was a huge advocate and supporter and ally of uh, Colombia, the Colombia that we are seeing today. And so I have no doubt that that policy is going to continue because he's still working with the same neoliberals from the Obama administration are now advising him on you know on his policies now so i just don't foresee much changing i don't know where like these liberals get this hope from like where is this i mean (laughs) well i think it's like trump was so kind of crazy and unpredictable that you know people were like well there's got to be something anything i think it's one one of the things actually that you know biden was the vice president during the peace negotiation during the negotiation of the accord and so mm-hmm. people assume yeah. people assume that um, he's actually you know, going to want to go back to the accord. But I think for the United States, the importance of the peace accord in Colombia was not making peace um, and having, you know, the equitable resolution or something like that. It was actually just to disarm the FARC. It was to get rid of the FARC. And so it's much easier to get them to basically agree to lay down their arms than to actually, you know, fight them militarily. And so they fought them militarily for a while to weaken them and convince them to lay down their arms, which they then did. And now it's like, you know, it's over. Like we, we won. So why would we go back to like, you know, some kind of uh, uh, agreement with them? Why would we install that? It's like we get, we get, the U.S. kind of now has its cake and can eat it too. I mean, I mean, it's yeah, it's the same sort of policy where if it, it only benefits the United States at the end of the day, um, that's the goal. Um, but uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. I mean, you are such an expert on this subject matter. Um, I mean, I was totally blown away by all the information that you just shared. Um, but you know, Dan has is working on a documentary, like he said, that's going to be coming out soon for behind the headlines on this very subject matter. Um, but um, that's a wrap for today. Did you want to add anything else before we let everybody go? Um, no, I mean, everyone just subscribe to our YouTube channel, the headlines and uh, watch for more content there. Yeah. So if you guys can share this live stream with, you know, on your pages, if you manage them just to help us beat social media algorithms. And, um, you know, we have our Patreon page that we appreciate all of our donors and uh, members to be a part of. And also make sure you subscribe to Mint Press News' YouTube channel and also Behind the Headlines YouTube channel. Thank you guys so much.